You're listening to the Outdoors Channel. Who? It's a splendid idea. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoors Channel for a new series of programmes for all you avid readers out there, aptly called The Book Club. Hosted by bookworm Andy Howell, we will be delving into various books, chatting with readers, writers and publishers about, well, anything to do with books, really. Guidebooks, handbooks, how-to books and so on. So, any feedback you have on this program or suggestions for future content, please call us on 020-8133-9434 and leave a message. The good ones will get included. In this program, Andy talks in depth to Kev Reynolds about his work and what goes into guidebook writing. But first, to get us in the mood, let's have some music from the Podsafe Music Network. Duncan McLeod... Black and Tan Records, don't believe anything you read. Say, hey, take your time When you're picking up your paper Don't believe everything you read It's a written word, so it got to be right. I heard somebody say, Oh, it's down in black and white. It's a written word, so Lord, it must be right. Today's hillwalkers have access to an extraordinary range of guidebooks that give us the confidence to explore mountain regions throughout the world. But just how are these guides put together? How much research and how much work is involved? Is guidebook writing a labour of love, or can you truly make a career out of it? 
Well, for this podcast, I was delighted to be joined by Kev Reynolds to talk about his 40-year career walking in and writing about some of the great mountain ranges of the world. Kev is one of the most prolific producers of trekking guides in the UK today, and his current titles include definitive works on the Pyrenees, the Alps, and the Himalaya. I started by asking him about all of those titles. I managed to count 27 in the current Cicerone catalogue alone. Um, do you know, I, I've no idea how many I've got in print at the moment. I've actually had... Uh, we were talking about this the other day, my wife and I, and we we reckoned it up, and I've had 43 books published, um, the various other publishers as well as this one. But these days, of course, I concentrate on... Uh, guidebooks with Cicerone and uh, you, you tell me there's 27 in print, well that's, that's quite possible I've no idea. There must be a great deal of work involved in just updating the current titles. Yeah the, as, as the years go on and the number of titles increase so I find that I'm spending probably more time updating guidebooks than I am producing new ones which is frustrating in a way but at the same time, it's rewarding to know that uh, enough people are buying the books that uh, they actually need new editions. And since I only write books about places that I'm passionate about, it's uh, a great excuse to go back and walk routes all over again and to you know, check things out. I've, I've just come back from the Alps where I, uh, I spent 17 days uh, walking the Chamonix-Zermatt route, Mont Blanc to the Matterhorn, to update the guidebook, a uh, new edition should be out next year. And I'm not quite sure how many times I've walked the route now, but every time is as fresh and as exciting as the very first time I walked it. So there's no, there's no real hardship about, about updating books, I assure you. So um, how do you manage to find the time to put all of these different activities together? What does an average year look like? Hmm. Well... I, I usually spend around three months or so, three to four months of the year away in various mountain regions, as a total. Um, but it's broken up, of course. I, I start the year, I say January, um, I'm doing a lot of lecturing. I do uh, about, well, between 40 and 50 lectures every winter. And my, my lecture season really goes from... Uh, about the end of October through till early May. And so when January comes around, start of a new year, I'm well into the lecture season. So I'm dashing around the country of an evening and sometimes during the day, uh, giving talks, um, sharing my passion for the countryside and uh, the wild places of this world with other people. And also that's my very busy time at the word processor. So I'll make an early start in the morning um, well, 8 o'clock will be late for me to start work at the um, word processor. So I'm, I'm writing away all day and then stuffing a bit of food down my throat and then dashing off to give a lecture in the evening. And uh, sometimes two a day, I've, uh, it's, it's not actually un unusual for me to give a, a lunchtime uh, talk to a, a club, a probus club or a ladies' luncheon club or something somewhere. And then that evening, we'll be giving another talk somewhere else in the countryside. So I do a lot of miles um, going around doing the lectures. It must be good to get the instant feedback from an audience. Yeah, yeah, and it, it also gives me an income. The lovely thing about lecturing is that it's instant money. You know, I don't, I don't want you to get the wrong impression that um, 
I'm only doing things for money, but obviously I've got to live. And when otherwise I rely on just two checks a year, two royalty checks a year, one that comes at the end of May and one that comes at the end of November. And there's no certainty about any income between those, those uh, royalty checks. Now, I know a lot of people listening are interested in this, but just how long has it taken you to uh, attain your current level of fame and notoriety? <laughs> well, I'm not sure about fame, but, uh, but um, yeah, I've, I've, it's, it's taken 20 years to, to build up the, the, the backlog, if you like, of, of titles, which is, which is helpful. Um, since you tell me I've got 27 in print, that means that I'm getting royalties from 27 books. Uh, through the year. Well, that, that does help, obviously. I've got to pay the rent. I've never earned enough money to get a mortgage, so um, I have a rent to pay, and obviously we've got uh, lots of other uh, overheads uh, to sort out as well, although we, we live very very modestly, which is, which is nice. Um, but, yeah, income is an important part of it, uh, but it's, it's not the most important part of it. Income enables me to work on the next project. Now, I'm fascinated to just understand what's involved in um, producing a guidebook. Um, could you talk us through it? Okay, well, let's, let's uh, go down the, the factual path. Um, to write a guidebook um, means that you've got to spend a lot of time out walking. Now, anybody who's keen on the outdoors will find that any excuse to get out in the outdoors, to get out walking, is great. Most of us, of course, have to do that at weekends and during our holidays, and if we're lucky, summer evenings if we live in a, a decent part of the world. Now, I, I do this for a living. I go out as often as I possibly can, walking to, um, to create routes for my guidebooks. Now, if I'm writing a guidebook to an area in southern England, that's fairly straightforward although I've just finished a, another guidebook to walking in Kent. And there are only 40 walks in it, but in order to get down to 40 walks, I've probably done 50 walks or so uh, to, to work out which are the best ones to include in the book. Now, for some of these walks, I might have to drive 100 miles around trip, so I'm only going to get one walk in in a day. And perhaps at the end of the day, I think, well, actually, it was a, a decent enough day out, but it wasn't good enough to go in a guidebook. So you can say that that's almost a day wasted. It's a day that you've got to cost. Uh, by the time you've, done, you've selected your 40 walks and you've written it up, this period of, um, of research might have taken several months. And then you sit at the word processor and you're working away at that for uh, several weeks. You've got um, the cost of uh, photography to consider and uh, the time it takes you to put all the whole thing together. Then um, the manuscript goes away to the publisher and the book might be published within a year, if you're lucky, of you're doing the research. But so far, you've paid out money. You have had to live over the months that you've been researching that book or say this is the first one you've done, there's no income uh, on its way in. And you're not going to earn any money from that book for at least 18 months. So we say, you finish writing the book, it goes off to the publisher. Uh, the publisher will produce that book, if you're lucky, within a year. But then it will be another six months after that before you 
can uh, assume that you're going to get any royalties whatsoever. And the amount of royalties you get in the first two or three years will never be sufficient to actually pay back the costs of research for that book. Now, you now consider that um, I'm writing a guidebook to, um, we'll say, the Pyrenees. Now, the Pyrenees is a large area, and it's impossible to do all the research for a guidebook to the Pyrenees just in one trip. So, it might take four or five trips to the Pyrenees to gather sufficient material to put together into a guidebook. Now, imagine the cost of travelling to the Pyrenees four or five times, the cost of your time down there, which will be several weeks each time. Multiply that with the, um, the time it's going to take you to write the book at the end and get that away. It's going to be years before you can even draw even uh, with your uh, income on what you've actually spent out. Presumably there are times when it's only a real genuine love of the mountains that keeps you going. Well, that's, I mean, you've, you've got to have a love for it. You've got to have a passion for what you're doing, and you've also got to have tremendous support behind you. I'm very lucky in that it, it, on, on two fronts. First one, I've got um, the world's best wife, who is, well, my life support system. She supports me all the way. She goes out and does um, work in order to uh, keep the bills paid while I'm out enjoying myself in the mountains. Um, you know, researching the next guidebook. And that's, that's the first thing. The second good thing is that I've never earned much money. So I've learned, we, we, my wife and I, we, we were youth hostel wardens for nearly 20 years, so we learned how to live on very little money and live well on very little money. If I'd had a conventional job earning a reasonable wage and if I had a, a mortgage to pay, then, of course, there is no way that I could go into writing guidebooks for a living. So you've got to start out from a very low base and never have any expectation of earning much money and then go and enjoy yourself. So it's much more of a lifestyle than um, a job. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody who thinks that uh, they can go and become a, a guidebook writer and, um, <laughs> and grow rich whilst doing it in financial terms, well, they're very wrong. Certainly you'll grow rich with experiences and the people you meet. And also, if you're lucky, uh, with the response you get from your readers. And I get some wonderful letters and emails from people who tell me about the trips they've made with some of my guidebooks, how they've enjoyed it. And they'll, they'll certainly tell me where I've gone wrong. But, um, you know, I make friends uh, through my readers, people whom I have never met. I feel that I have spent hundreds of days in their company in the mountains and enjoyed it immensely. So um, how did you get started in hill walking? Um, when did the bug really first bite? Well, first of all, I was fortunate in that I went to a, a primary school, a junior school, uh, whose headmaster was absolutely potty about uh, the world of nature, the world outside. He was a, a true countryman in every sense. Every lesson that he taught, somehow he managed to bring in a study of nature. And any of us children who showed the slightest inclination uh, to follow his course were encouraged out at weekends, summer evenings, school holidays and all this. He would take us out 
on journeys of exploration along flat country fields through woodlands and made the world to us a place of huge excitement and rewards. So with that, uh, getting into that at an age of, I don't know, what, nine or ten or something like this. I mean, I was lucky, again, in that I only had to walk to the end of my garden, climb over the fence at the bottom of the garden, and it was just countryside for miles and miles and miles. So, again, although it wasn't exciting, countryside by comparison with, say, the Himalaya or the Alps or anything like that, it only wasn't exciting when I look back and consider uh, what the countryside is there in, in that part of Essex. But at the time, it was fabulous. It was a wonderland. So then later on, um, uh, in the scouts, I was taken on a scout camp to Snowdonia, and that was it. I was hooked on the very first day I got there, gazing. We, we camped in Capelcurrig, um, just below where Plassey Brennan is, and I remember gazing along the Mimber Lakes to the Snowdon Trinity at the far end of the valley there and thinking, my God, this is fantastic. And I said, that was it. I've, I've been hooked ever since. Now, there was a pivotal moment in your life, wasn't there, when you uh, sat on top of a hill and uh, made some pretty dramatic decisions? That's right. I was, I was 21 years old, and I was on my first expedition to the High Atlas Mountains in Morocco. In those days, this is in the uh, early 1960s, very few people were going there. I mean, these days, it's a popular uh, trekking uh, destination uh, for, for Brits and uh, other Europeans. But in those days, it was, it was quite rare to, to find anybody there. And I was on an expedition there, um, climbing, exploring, and thought this was just amazing, you know, being up at uh, 4,000 metres and gazing off to the Sahara in the south. And, oh, it's just wonderful. Um, you know, several days' walk from the nearest road and all that sort of thing. Anyway, one, one day I was sitting on the summit of Jebel Tuzkal, which, as you're probably aware, is the highest mountain in North Africa. And I sat on the summit there with a friend, one of the other climbers on this expedition. And I told him that as soon as I got home, I was going to do two things. The first was uh, ask my girlfriend to marry me. And the second thing was to sell in my job in local government and look for work in mountains. Uh, I couldn't face the possibility of going back to a, a nine-to-five existence, working from Monday to Friday, looking forward to Saturday. So when I got home, that's right, I, I proposed to my girlfriend. She said yes, and we've now been married for nearly 40 years. And uh, I handed in my notice in uh, local government and went off to the Alps and found work out there First of all, in a youth hostel in Switzerland, and then I was leading groups of walkers in the mountains in Austria. Then I came home two weeks before we got married. We got married, went straight back out to Switzerland to work in the youth hostel again, and that's that's how it went on. Just you know, forget all about earning money for a living. Just do what you believe in, and somehow it will work out, and it has. Now you came back to Britain to raise a family. Um, that must have been quite difficult trying to juggle guidebooks, the travelling, and raising young family as well? Well, I, I don't... <laughs> you know, people often say to me, you know, it must be hard work. I, I, I honestly can't say that I've ever found it terribly difficult. I mean, we, we brought up a young family uh, running a youth hostel, 
um, on very little money. My wife wasn't even being uh, paid for the full time that she was working there, and we had to pay rent for the for the children out of our meagre income. So we had virtually no money at all. Um, but in order to have holidays, I was writing articles for, in those days, it was Climber and Rambler. And uh, I, writing has always come fairly easy to me. Um, even when I was at school, I wanted to uh, be, be a writer somehow. I wanted to go into journalism, but I just couldn't get into it to start with. Um, but I was writing articles, as I say, for Climb and Rambler and one or two other magazines at the time. And the small amount of money that I was earning from that was just sufficient to enable us to have our holidays in the mountains, of course. And it was through that I was doing a whole series of articles about the Pyrenees. Nobody was writing about the Pyrenees in those days. And the editor of Climb Lamb in those days was Walt Unsworth, who had just started his own guidebook company, which was his own press. And he contacted me and said, look, seeing all your articles on the Pyrenees, we've got this little guidebook company, and it'd be nice to have a, a guide to the Pyrenees. How about it? Well, I'd never even looked at a guidebook <laughs> Until then, I wasn't remotely interested in guidebooks. I just went to the mountains with a map and gazed at a mountain and thought, must be a route up there, and off I went. And uh, that was that was how I I thought people carried on in the mountains. So uh, I went off and bought a guidebook to have a look to see what sort of things were in it. Well, I suppose I could do this, and that was it. So um, take us through the process of uh, actually producing a guide. Uh, well, these days um, I take a, a little um, dictaphone, a little tape recorder, handheld tape recorder with me. And uh, so as I'm wandering through the mountains, I jabber away into that so that I've got absolutely spot on, up to the minute information stored on it. It's no good, you know, trying to write it down because you shorthand things if you write it down on the spot. And at the end of the day, you know, you're missing bits. So it's imperative to get things right. So I'm jabbering away into my little tape recorder. And then at the end of the day, whether I'm in a tent, a mountain hut or a hotel or just sleeping out under the stars somewhere, I will transfer that spoken word from the tape recorder into a notebook in longhand. And then when I get home, I try to decipher my writing. <laughs> My handwriting and uh, knock it off then on the word processor and then build the whole thing up from there. But uh, it all starts really with just you know observation as you're going along and chattering away into a tape recorder. I photograph an awful lot. I love taking photographs. I wish that I were a real artist. You know, somebody could sit down and, and paint the landscapes I see. But I've got no talent at all like that. So. Um, I enjoy taking photographs, which is a, a terrific way of recording the moment and storing that up. Now, over the last couple of years, you produced some a uh, couple of very different books. Are these um, signs of new directions? Well, I would hope so. I mean, this was uh, Alpine points of view. I mean, it was it was something that I wanted to produce for a long time, but I I was too shy, really, of mentioning it to to um, Cicerone or, or indeed to anybody else. It seemed to be a, a bit of an arrogance. I mean, there are, there are lots of 
what I call real photographers out there. Um, but of all the books that I was seeing on the Alps, for example, um, they were either um, putting photographs of the villages or they were really dramatic photographs that were only taken by climbers who were prepared to dangle by their fingertips from precipitous slopes. Um, and I, I was so concerned that people were getting the wrong idea about the Alps. The Alps is a tremendously dramatic range, scenically dramatic range, but you don't have to be a top climber to see some of the finest scenery in the world. So what I wanted to do was put together a collection of photographs that would illustrate to people just how how much the walker, the ordinary walker, can uh, see just from wandering the trails. So eventually I, uh, I got about, I don't know, 150 large prints made, and that cost a lot of money. I could only get uh, afford to have 10 prints made at a time because I only use slides. I don't do digital photography at all. Um, and to get 10 large prints made from my slides was, was a costly business, so I, you know, I built it up slowly until I got a collection of about 150. And then I put together a lot of captions. And then, quite unannounced, I dropped the lot on uh, Cicerone's table and said, see what you think about that, and then let me know in due course. Um, I was... I was afraid that they were going to say, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's not really our scene. But um, I've got such a good relationship with them, I thought I have to try them first. And instantly, I think within, a, within an hour, I had a phone call to say, yeah, let's go for it. Come on up to the office and we'll design the thing and get it all done. And the whole thing was, well, from the, from the time I handed over the, the, the selection of photographs, to the actual production date was just under six months, which is phenomenally quick. And they got it out in time for Christmas, which was a year before last. And yeah, it was it was uh, quite well received. I'm very happy with that. And I would like to do some more in future. In fact, I'm slowly putting together a, a selection of photographs of the Himalaya. I've made a lot of trips out there. And uh, yet again, I want to I want to illustrate to to the public just how how much raw beauty you can see just by just by wandering in the trails without being a top climber or anything. I think that's quite important. I'm constantly meeting people who've done a lot of uh, hill walking in Britain but who worry about whether they can cope with the terrain in the Pyrenees or the Alps or even the Himalaya. I was getting on before I went to the Himalaya for the first time. I was convinced that I could never afford to go there. And then um, I was I was invited to go on a, a, a trek to Kanchenjunga when that part of Nepal, northeastern Nepal, was open for the first time to trekkers. Up until then, it had only been um, only uh, specific mountaineering expeditions to Kanchenjunga had been allowed to go into that part of Nepal. And then uh, the Nepalese government actually decided to allow, uh, I think it was 400 trekkers in the first year. And uh, I got an opportunity to go as a journalist uh, with a group from Sherpa Expeditions, one of the first ever um, treks to go there to Kanchenjunga. 
and I was asked to go out there as a journalist to write about it, which was a fantastic opportunity. And so, uh, having gone to Nepal, uh, not only did I go and keep my eyes and ears open and, and enjoy every moment of the experience, whilst I was in Kathmandu, I rushed around and I quizzed all sorts of people to find out just how one could organise your own journeys, your own trips out there. And from that time on, I knew that uh, I needn't be afraid of cost or anything. It was all accessible, all easy to organise. And uh, so off I went thereafter every year. I, I go out there uh, either on my own or with my wife or with a couple of friends or if uh, if I haven't got a, a liking job to do, then uh, I will organise a, a trek for eight, nine, ten people, and uh, that that covers my costs, and uh, we can go off to the most amazing places. Fabulous. Now, you can organise your own trips to the Himalaya, but I think you need a Mr Fix-It, somebody locally based, to uh, do a lot of the arranging for you. Yeah, sure. Sure. I, 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 I would... I always say, though, to people that for their first ever trip, they should go um, with an organised uh, party out to, to the Himalaya so that they haven't got to worry about anything. You know, you just you pay your, you pay for your cheque and you go and let other people um, worry about uh, all the organisation, where to stay and all this sort of thing. Um, go with them and once you've been to the Himalaya, you'll... Very few people go there only once. You know, I always say that the, what starts out to be the trip of a lifetime becomes just the first of many. And uh, so if you go there once with a group or with, with others who have been before, shall we say, so that you haven't got to worry about anything except just coping with a strange environment, because there's an awful lot to adapt to when you go to the Himalaya. And there's a whole cultural... Uh, change from anything you've known before. Um, there's also the physical thing. How are you going to cope with the altitude? Most people, I think, are a bit worried about the altitude until they've actually been to altitude and, and, and discover how, how they can cope with it. Um, but if you, if you can take all the other worries, all your organisational worries, out of the system, then, of course, you can go and enjoy it properly. Having been once, then, of course you're well set to go and do your own thing in future, you know, because you will then have the confidence, the confidence to go back again. You know where some of the pitfalls are, um, and you've seen that other people can organise their way around them, and uh, if other people can do it, so can you. And then, you know, my guidebooks, I hope, give a clue as to uh, how to get through. I know that altitude sickness is a particular worry for a lot of people, and um, there's no way of predicting how it hits, is there? I mean, um, you can be very fit uh, and still suffer from altitude sickness. That's right. It, it, can, it can affect anybody, but it, it's funny, statistically, um, uh, younger people or more younger people suffer from altitude-related problems than do older people. Um, and I think that... The prob probably the reason behind that is that young people always, and, and the fitter they are, the, the faster they want to go. They're always in a hurry, always anxious to get to the next stage, get that bit higher and so forth. As you get older, so you're quite content uh, to go slower. 
And going slow is a great benefit uh, to adapting to altitude. Going slow, stopping regularly, and drinking a lot, and I don't mean alcohol, drinking a lot, uh, that will help uh, the body adapt to altitude. Younger people tend to, as I say, be in too much of a hurry. They want to get to their goal too soon. And my view is always if you've got the, op the opportunity to uh, walk in from the foothills to the big mountains rather than take a flight in to the edge of the high country, then I'd always say go for the slow option and go for the foothills to start with and walk in because that way you are building up your fitness, you're getting steadily more used to the culture, you see an enormous uh, variety of scenery and vegetation, different ethnic groups as you're going along, and also you are adapting to the altitude as you go. Well, that's great news for those of us who are beginning to feel our age. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think there is an upper age limit for going to the Himalayas for the first time, to be quite honest. If, if you're, if you're uh, keen on, on the outdoors and you really want to go to the Himalaya, it doesn't matter whether you're um, 22 years old or 62 years old or 72 years old. If you've still got the fitness, you can go and do it and you will have a wonderful time. I've, I've met people who did not go to the Himalaya until they were in their late 60s. I've got a very dear friend who is now in his 80s who went to Bhutan for the first time when he was, I think he was 70, and he'd never been to the Himalaya before that. And since then, he's been to Bhutan, he's been to um, Nepal, he's been to Tibet. <laughs> he still keeps going at it. And as long as you could keep going, there's no reason why um, age should get in the way. Now, I'd like to talk about the new World Mountain Series guides, which uh, I think we should explain are... Uh, like works of reference to look at uh, at home there, certainly not the kind of guidebooks you want to take with you on the walk, um, but they are the kind of thing to study in great depth um, before you start on your trek. Um, they're so comprehensive, they must have involved an awful amount of work. Yeah, it was. It, 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 um, it was the World Mountain Series was, was my idea from the start, so I've only got myself to blame on this. <laughs> I'd I figured that uh, there was a book to be written somewhere that would have all the information that I would want if I was planning to go to a mountain range for the first time. Um, I knew that there wasn't such a book. My, my walks and climbs in the Pyrenees, it, it had a specific purpose, but it was not answering um, all the questions that I would have uh, as, a, as, a, as a novice wanting to go off to the pyramid, not, not just a, a novice in the mountains. I mean, I might be a very experienced climber, but a novice as far as the Pyrenees was concerned. So <clears throat> I decided that I would uh, put together a book with all the information in there that I would want if I'd never been to the Pyrenees before. And um, so, yeah, it took a long time. It took three, three or four years to gather all the information together and to, to actually make the book of it. Um, of course, I've, I've got a good background of the Pyrenees. I've been going there for, what, about 40 years, well, nearly 40 years at the time. And uh, so I, I knew the geography pretty well, which was a good start. I knew 
where the valleys were, where the main peaks were, how to get from one area to the other. That that was a really good start. Um, so I could put down, if you like, the framework of the mountains and the valleys. And then I needed to fill them in, fill those valleys uh, with the villages and the huts and the transport system. And then I had to look at the mountains and think, now, what are the routes that I would like to climb there? And so it was gathering information, because there's a hell of a lot of information that is available, but only if you know where to look for it. And most of it, of course, is in French uh, magazines or, or books or Spanish magazines and, and books, and not in any English form. So digging around to find all that was... was uh, well, it was a huge task, but it was something that I absolutely loved doing. It's it's almost like a, like a detective work, really. You start off with a question, and in seeking the answer to that question, you find other questions come up, and so you're diverted down little side tracks, and then you discover a real gem, and you think, wow, this is good. I, you, you stumble across stuff that you hadn't even been looking for, you know? And then you piece the whole thing together, and you make these amazing journeys without even um, stepping outside my, my little study. I'm making these amazing journeys through valleys and up over mountains that I have known for a long time. But I'm, I'm finding out where the new routes are and, and, uh, and looking over the ridges into a new valley system and getting excited because I want to get down there. And if I want to get down there, I'm hoping that my readers will want to get down there as well. So how the hell do we get over this ridge? Where's the route down there? And once we get down there into that new valley system, where do we stay? You know, where are the rivers going? And, you know, where are the villages? Where are the huts? Uh, what's the wildlife like? I'm, I'm full of inquisitiveness so far as new ranges are concerned, let alone those ranges that I've known for a number of years. And I get so excited at the possibility, or the prospects rather, of making new journeys in, into them, be they journeys actually on foot or at the word processor. And so my study is full of maps and notebooks and, and, and other books and, and torn out articles from magazines from France and Spain or wherever. And piecing the whole thing together was like a huge jigsaw puzzle, but one that was growing more and more exciting each day. And when the whole thing was finished, well, it was it, it was a very sad moment, actually. It wasn't a, a sense of euphoria when it was finished. I was almost distraught because the journey had finished, you know? And it was then left to somebody else to wrap it all up and create the book. Well, the Pyrenees Guide um, certainly works. It's a very useful, very impressive book. Um, I guess there are more to follow? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm working on one at the moment on the, on the Swiss Alps, on all the Swiss Alps, which is, is, is quite, a, quite a challenge. There are others that are being prepared by other writers, because there's no way that I could do the whole series. The whole idea was that um, I would get experts for various regions to, to write books um, in the series about their areas. And... Um, Chris Townsend is just about finishing one on Scotland, which I think would be terrific. I really look forward to seeing that. But um, there are, I have to say that there are writers who have um, agreed to take on um, 
that they work on a particular area, on their own particular areas of expertise, and they've, they've set out with great enthusiasm for it, and after a few months have thrown in the towel because it's, you know, it's just, it's just too time-consuming. So, um, in, a, in a way, I've, I've set a bit of a, too much of a challenge, I think, for some people who are exceedingly good writers and know their areas very well, but they, you know, have to be pragmatic about it and say, well, you know, I've got to be able to create or produce a book within a certain time frame, otherwise it doesn't become a financial uh, viability for them, you know. They've got to live as well, and not everybody is able to live as cheap as uh, as, as we do here. Um, and I, anyway, I, I I just feel, so far as I'm concerned, that if it's a project that needs doing, and I really want to do it, then some way we'll find, uh, you know, a financial backing to to enable me to do it. You know, I've got, I've got that sort of faith, but not everybody's got that, and I don't hold it against them. But I just understand that. Other people have different financial priorities and can't commit the time to such a project. Well, I think there are a lot of us who are going to be grateful for these World Mountain Series guidebooks over the coming years or so. Um, now, I'm wondering about other developments. Is there, for example, uh, an autobiography in the making? Yeah, well, um, I, I don't know about a, an autobiography, but there's, there, are, there are books that I've got... Uh, stacked away in the back of my head um, that I want to write, uh, you know, narrative style. Um, I want to put together a book on the various uh, journeys I've made in the Himalaya, for example. Um, and that, that's, that's something I've, I've written a few chapters to just to start with, but, you know, it's just finding the time to fit it in between all the other jobs. Um, yeah, there, there, are, there are several books narrative style books that I want to do and I, I just wonder if they might have to wait until my knees completely give out and I won't be able to uh, to keep going with, with the guidebooks because you know the guidebook writing obviously is a very physical thing I mean I've got to remain fit and, and active uh, in order to uh, to do the routes that I write about um, and there will come a time I have no doubt when um, you know, I'm, I'm just not able to do it, or well, certainly not able to do it as much as I am at the moment. I mean, I'm coming up to 63, uh, um, and whilst I'd like to think that I can keep doing this until I'm at least 120, uh, my wife keeps telling me that that's not really a possibility. So one day I, I may have to ease up on the guidebooks, and then I shall find time, hopefully, to thunder out some of these other books I want to do. People who listen to these podcasts are always fascinated by gear and about the different modes of travel that people engage. For example, um, you know, do you stay in hostels? Um, uh, do you wild camp? I, uh, wild camping? Well, I, I don't do much wild camping as such these days. Um, I mean, I, I don't like carrying uh, huge loads on my back. And if you're disappearing off into the mountains for a few weeks and you're going to be camping, then, of course, the weight's to stack up a bit so I'm, I'm very happy just to sleep out under the stars I don't even take a sleeping bag with me these days I mean just this recent trip across the Alps um, I, you know, there were times when I just decided oh, it's a nice evening um, I might as well sleep out 
and uh, you know just put on my waterproof gear because you know things get a bit damp or cooler um, an hour or so before dawn and uh, just lie down on a bed of turf somewhere or in a little woodland in fact I was uh, I was settling down oh, I was asleep actually in a in a little uh, thin strip of larch wood um, uh, about fortnight ago three weeks ago <laughs> when suddenly I was woken by this awful roaring noise frightened the lights out of me <laughs> When I sat up, I looked through the, the darkness, and there was this something great stag looking at me just a few metres away. You know, he, he obviously didn't um, didn't appreciate my presence there in his territory. When you lie out, are you relying on a bivy bag? No, no, not even a bivy bag. Just just lie out. Be, what, what, a bivy bag is. Well, it's not much protection anyway. Is it? I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, choose to sleep out if the weather was. You know, if it looked as though it was going to storm or anything like that. But, you know, a nice summer evening. Gosh, you know, there's nothing nicer than just tipping out under the stars. Presumably there are still um, a lot of new areas in the world to explore. Oh, my word, yes. I, mean, I think when I started on this, this course, I had a list of places that I wanted to go to. And as the years have progressed, so I've worked my way through that list not not completely but the list never gets shorter you know it grows and it grows all the time and now my list of places to visit is probably about four times as long as it was 20 years ago despite all the places i've been to i've got this huge yearning to go to alaska to go down to tierra del fuego i've not yet been to new zealand I want to do some more in the in the Andes, um, down in Peru. I want to go down. Well, I've been to Peru, into the Andes, but I want to see more of them. There's a it's a huge, huge range of mountains. I want to do some more exploring there. I want to go back to the Himalayas and do some more there. I want to get into Bhutan, um, the Karakoram. There's a, there are dozens of places to go to, and dozens of guidebooks yet to be written. But, um, well, it's, it's frustrating only getting one lifetime, you know. Well, I, for one, hope that you've got many years left in those knees yet, and uh, it's been fantastic talking to you. You're very welcome. Nice to talk to you, Andy. Have you finished trekking for the year, or is there more to come? No, no, no. I'm, I'm off again in about uh, what, fortnight's time, I think. Fortnight, yeah, it must be fortnight, three weeks. Um, I've got to rewalk the Tour Mont Blanc, because um, the guidebook needs a, a new edition again there. Um, I've got some more to do in the Pyrenees. Um, yeah, it's, there's, there's still plenty more to do this year. So I'm not ready to uh, to start on the lecture circuit just yet. Well, be sure to have yourself a great time. Many thanks. Bye for now. Well, there you have it, a fascinating insight into the life and work of one of our leading travel guide writers. You can find out more about Kev's work on the Cicerone website and be sure to check out the three unusual titles we mentioned during the podcast, the collection of photographs, an alpine point of view, the Royal Mountain series Guide to the Pyrenees and Kev's other work of reference, Walking in the Alps. You've been listening to The Book Club on the Outdoors Channel. My name is Andy Howell and until next time, take care and happy hiking. Well, my thanks go to Andy for putting the programme together and for our guest, Kev Reynolds, of course. That about wraps it up from us. Don't forget our feedback number for any of your comments. We would love to hear them. 
Until next time, bye from the book club. Call now on this number. 020-8133-9434. Call me anytime you want. This podcast is produced and hosted by The Outdoors Channel. Find out how easy it is to subscribe to all our podcasts by visiting theoutdoorschannel.co.uk. Ciao, baby.